This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Dave Packer. Coming up, a Russian opposition leader dead. Ukraine struggling to fight back. Warnings about Russian President Vladimir Putin's endgame. And what could happen if Congress doesn't act? Each day, he is working to undermine confidence in the U.S. government. He is seeking to disrupt our relationship with NATO, and he's seeking to destabilize the U.S. Abortion restrictions in some states prompting some women to leave their homes secretly to get the care they need to save their lives. We talked to women impacted by these laws, with one saying she never thought it would happen to her. There's definitely gray areas that should definitely be considered and not some government telling you that yes or no. And a skincare regimen at 11? It's becoming a new trend. What products these Gen Alpha girls are using and what the medical community is saying about it. It's mostly unnecessary. All ahead on Perspective. Coming into the week, tensions between the U.S. and Russia were high, but by the end of the week, they escalated to the point where the U.S. was issuing hundreds of new sanctions against Russia. Another appeal was denied to Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained in Russia. A former ballerina with dual Russian-U.S. citizenship was arrested, charged with high treason, accused of voicing opposition to Russia's war in Ukraine. And then there was this. Outrage around the world and a slew of unanswered questions after the death of Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Putin's harshest critic. Russian officials say he died while on a walk in a penal colony near the Arctic Circle. According to Navalny's team, the death certificate said he died of natural causes. But Navalny's family accusing the Russian government of not granting them immediate access to his body and even pressuring them to hold a private funeral. The international community says his death wasn't an accident. President Biden making it clear. Putin is responsible. Whether he ordered or not, he is responsible for the circumstances put that man in. The president met with Navalny's family this week, and the White House announced more than 500 sanctions against Russia in the wake of Navalny's death. Russia is the most sanctioned country in the world, but it's been able to find ways to evade and adapt. The Treasury Department says with this latest round, it's fine-tuning its strategy to, quote, put sand in the gears of Russia's military-industrial complex, making it more difficult for Moscow to build its weapons. A senior official at Treasury says if Russia is going to turn its industries into wartime producers, then, quote, all of Russia's production is now fair game. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington. But not only that. The Justice Department is also accusing Russia of swaying opinions here at home. An informant who was a central part of the Republican-led impeachment inquiry against President Biden has been charged with lying to federal law enforcement. ABC News Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas says Alexander Smirnov was actively working with Russian operatives while talking to U.S. officials. Prosecutors say Smirnov was actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections after meeting with Russian intelligence officials in November. Smirnov is charged with lying to the FBI, making up a story that as Vice President, Joe Biden accepted a $5 million bribe from Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company where his son Hunter sat on the board. 
That false story cited by House Republicans again and again to justify launching their impeachment investigation. A highly credible FBI source alleges that Joe Biden received $5 million in exchange for pressuring for the firing of a Ukrainian prosecutor. But prosecutors say it was all a fabrication. And as the war in Ukraine passes a two-year mark this week, Congress is deadlocked, leaving Washington and failing to approve more funding for military aid. ABC's James Longman says Ukrainian forces are rationing weapons and losing momentum. Ukrainian commanders with a stark warning. Russia is on the brink of a major offensive on multiple fronts across the east. Forming Kramatorsk following their takeover of the town of Adivka, regaining ground lost in Ukraine's counteroffensive last summer. Ukraine says it's outmanned and outgunned, digging trenches as the Russians close in, military aid on hold, blocked by Republicans in the U.S. House. A senior defense official telling ABC News the situation for Ukrainian forces could become catastrophic if no more military aid comes by late March. ABC's Patrick Rievel and ABC News national security contributor John Cohn talked to ABC's Kira Phillips about the challenges facing Ukraine, the sanctions hitting Russia, and what Putin's long-term plan may be. The United Kingdom has sanctioned the heads of the Arctic penal colony. What is the UK saying about this? Hi, Kira. Yeah, the UK has said that it's sanctioning the head of the prison. But ultimately, you know, this is a pretty token sanction so far because it's unlikely that the officials in the prison have significant assets in the UK. It's unlikely that they'll try and visit the UK. They may not even be allowed by Russia to visit the UK. These are the sort of token sanctions that Navalny's supporters have been warning against. Ultimately, experts have said that it is hard to see what the sanctions can be that can be tougher than are those already imposed on Russia because of the war here in Ukraine. So you're in Kyiv and you also met with the former Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. amid the ongoing deadlock in Congress over more aid. What did you hear as being a part of that conversation? Yeah, we met with the former ambassador to the U.S., Valerie Chali. And one of the things that we spoke about was that, you know, many Republican congressmen who oppose more aid to Ukraine say that uh, the U.S. should cut off aid because it's only prolonging the war and that by reducing aid, you can try and push Ukraine towards the negotiating table. But he strongly disagreed with that. And take a listen to what he told us. If the United States stops supply of weapons, the war is in. That's wrong, absolutely wrong perception of the situation. The war won't end. No. Unfortunately, just uh, make the message and give the message and signal to Putin that they will be invited to European parts uh, of uh, NATO. He also, though, said that he is still hopeful that Congress will find a way to pass um, that package and that he hopes that that will come in the coming weeks. So, John... Russia is just constantly attacking the U.S. Clearly, it doesn't just take uh, weapons to do this. We tend to look at all of these different events as unique and individual circumstances, but they're not. Um, I think it's important for people to really understand what Vladimir Putin's objectives are. He wants to restore the territorial boundaries and the geopolitical influence of the Soviet Union. So to do that, he needs to do several things. One, he needs to reclaim territories in Eastern Europe, and he's using his military to do that in Ukraine. In, in, and we can anticipate that if he's successful in Ukraine, he'll expand into other Eastern European countries. But he also knows NATO and the United States stand in his way uh, of achieving his objectives. So he's using an asymmetric or hybrid warfare uh, techniques in order to uh, undermine the ability of NATO and Western Europe to block him. So he's engaging in cyber attacks, 
information warfare. He's uh, using his military proxies in the Middle East and in Africa. Uh, and each day he is working to undermine confidence in the U.S. government. He is seeking to disrupt our relationship with NATO and he's seeking to destabilize the U.S. That's ABC News national security contributor John Cohen and ABC's Patrick Reval speaking with ABC's Kira Phillips. Coming up, pleas to end the bloodshed in Gaza and the road ahead for Donald Trump, according to New York's Attorney General, on Perspective after this. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Dave Packer. Calls growing this week for relief for the millions of Gaza civilians caught on the crossfire of Israel's war with Hamas and struggling to find basic necessities. Two reports showing the dire situation for civilians there, including one from epidemiologists at Johns Hopkins University and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. They found that more than 85,000 Gazans could die in the next six months if the war escalates. And a report from the United Nations pointing the finger at Israeli forces, saying that Palestinian women and girls have been executed, tortured, and even kept in cages in the rain and cold. The IDF denying the report, saying that they follow international law. All of this while the International Court of Justice at The Hague met to discuss Israel's presence in land where Palestinians also live, like Gaza. ABC's Matt Gutman breaks it down to ABC's Brad Milkey on Start Here. What is this case? What are the accusations? It's actually a case that was brought against Israel in December of 22, and it was based on a UN General Assembly decrying the occupation of the West Bank specifically by Israel. So just a really quick primer, Brad. 1967, Israel launches a preemptive attack on multiple Arab states, its neighbors, including Jordan. Jordan at that time had or was in control of what we now know as the West Bank. Israel defeated Jordan took the land, and never left. Israel never officially annexed the West Bank, saying, like, it's mine, but it also never gave it up. And in the interim, over the past 50-plus years, Israeli Jewish settlers have moved in to towns that they created, sometimes annexing or taking Palestinian land for it, and making homes, making villages, towns. Some of the towns are quite big. So what started out with just literally a few people in the very late 60s and then in the 70s has now become about 400,000 settlers who live in the West Bank proper 
and a couple of hundred thousand additional Israelis who live in East Jerusalem, which is also contested still. So that is really the crux of what's at issue here. And these 52 countries who are going to press the case against Israel saying that violates international law. And the proceedings were opened up by the Palestinian foreign minister, Riyadh al-Maliki. The only solution consistent with international law is for this illegal occupation to come to an immediate, unconditional, and total end. And if you ask the settlers who live there, they say, well, if there is any place in the world where Jews have a right to the land, it's right here. If he says in the Bible, I want the children of Israel to live in the land of Israel, so for me, that's not only an imperative, it's an invitation. There is a reason that Jews have the name Jews. It's because they are from the area of Judea, which is the southern part of the West Bank. But Matt, just so I'm clear, like the war right now is in Gaza. You're hearing about like claims of genocide that Israel fiercely disputes. Does any of that have to do with this? Or you're saying this is just a completely historic thing that is coincidentally now coming up? Yeah, so the connective tissue here is that both the criminal case against Israel for genocide and this case against Israel for its occupation in the West Bank, well, and previously Gaza and East Jerusalem, they're both happening at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. But that's really it. And so legally speaking, the two cases are not at all related, but obviously it has a lot to do with Israel's conduct in the West Bank and in Gaza as well. Since October 7th and the terrible rampage by Hamas on Israeli communities just outside the Gaza Strip, Peace Now says that 26 new illegal outposts were created. That is the most ever in a year. And they're saying that all of that happened after October 7th, which seems to indicate that settlers are using this moment to try to grab as much land as they possibly can because Israeli sentiment is so anti-Palestinian right now. So that makes me wonder, what actually comes of this, Matt? Because most Americans, for instance, do not know what the International Court of Justice is, right? The U.S. isn't even a signatory of it. Like, we don't recognize their authority. Neither do Israel or China or Russia, a bunch of countries. So, I mean, what is the significance of The Hague when it comes to this conflict? So it's kind of tricky, right? The Hague's rulings are binding, but there is no enforcement. So it would be on Israel to enact any changes that the ICJ demands, which is probably not going to happen, especially not under a Netanyahu government. Everybody who talks about a two-state solution, well, I ask, what do you mean by that? Should the Palestinians have an army? Multiple Israeli governments had said that they would trade most of the West Bank if they had a Palestinian partner they could work with. Right. A leader or a group of leaders who were powerful enough to enforce the agreements in a peace deal. And Israel has consistently said that that leader or group of people has not occurred and not risen up, and so it can't have peace and it can't give back the West Bank. At the same time, it has been building these settlements, which the U.S., and the international community have roundly called illegal. We both was very surprised that the president of the United States is uh, interested in people like us in Israel. And it is showing this international consensus that is growing against Israel, specifically because of its handling of the war in Gaza. The massive deaths. The indescribable amount of destruction of Palestinians' homes, uh, infrastructure, pretty much everything in the Gaza Strip, uh, well over 50% of all of the structures destroyed there. And in a normal year, 
U.S. officials might turn a blind eye to settlement activities, but not now. The government of Israel that is on the ground, that we have been very clear, needs to do more to arrest uh, extremist settlers engaged in violence and prosecute extremist settlers engaged in violence. They have been so rampant, especially some of the more fanatical settlers who've been trying to oust Palestinians from their land, who've been shooting at them. There have been cases of Israeli settlers shooting and murdering Palestinians. 17-year-old Taufik has now become an accidental martyr. Farmer Bilal Saleh shot while picking olives with his family in their own field. And the U.S. is no longer turning a blind eye for the first time. They are sanctioning specific settlers for their actions in the occupied territory, specifically the West Bank. This is going to get even more tricky for the U.S. to navigate, and they're going to have to crack down on Israel to some degree, depending on what the ICJ ruling is. That's ABC's Matt Gutman speaking to ABC's Brad Milkey. No delay for former President Trump to pay off the roughly $355 million he owes in the civil fraud judgment against him and his company. A judge in New York denied Trump's attorney's request to delay it by 30 days. That means Trump could be forced to pay it soon. And New York Attorney General Letitia James says the money he owes in interest alone will accrue daily and make the final amount even larger. ABC's Aaron Katursky sat down with James this week. You said you wanted to stop repeated, persistent fraud is this decision from Judge Gorin what you had in mind? So this decision is a victory for all New Yorkers, in fact, for all Americans. And it underscores the basic and simple axiom that no one is above the law, no matter how powerful or politically connected one is, that the law should apply to all of us fairly and equally. Mr. Trump, as some of his directors and his adult sons engaged in this massive amount of fraud, and then they had to be held accountable, and that's exactly what we just, we did. They said no victim, no one got harmed, the banks got paid back, so no harm, no foul. Why is that not the case in your view? So financial frauds are not victimless crimes. Um, he engaged in this massive amount of fraud and it wasn't just a simple mistake, a slight oversight. The variations were wildly exaggerated and the extent of the fraud was staggering. And again, the message is simple. Uh, that if average New Yorkers went into a bank and submitted false documents, the government would throw the book at them. And the same should be true of former presidents. Does he have the money to pay this? That's really uh, not my business. Uh, uh, the judgment is $363 million plus $100 million in interest, which accrues each and every day at 9% interest. Um, and so if he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment, uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court. And we will ask the judge to seize his assets. Is the decision from the judge enough to stop the fraud? Because you've said at the outset that's what your goal was, to, to stop the fraud. Will this stop? Well, the Trump Organization will be monitored um, by, by um, Judge Barbara Jones, the Honorable Barbara Jones, and um, a compliance officer. And so they will supervise the transactions, they will supervise uh, the statements of financial condition uh, to ensure that they are rid of any fraud, um, and they will supervise the day-to-day -day operation of the Trump Organization. Summary judgment ruling aside, I'm curious, just, we all sat through the trial, as, as you did for much of it, was there a moment in the case where you said, oh, this is, I'm going to win? 
Well, after we received the summary judgment initially from the judge, we knew um, that uh, we had already been victorious because the judge had made a determination based on the documentary evidence um, that, in fact, Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization um, had engaged in um, this conduct of fraud over a 10-year period of time. It's also important to note um, that he's done this before. Let me remind you and your audience, the Trump Foundation, fraud. The Trump University, fraud. And there was also a case in the District of Columbia related to his inauguration, fraud. A pattern and practice of illegality and blatant fraud. ABC's Aaron Katursky speaking to New York Attorney General Letitia James. Trump has slammed the ruling, calling it politically motivated, says he's appealing. Coming up, a bombshell ruling in Alabama and the journey some women make to save their own lives while pregnancy is not an option. On Perspective, after this. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Dave Packer. Coming up, skincare for kids. But first, a new reality for women and what treatments they have access to in a post-Roe America. In Alabama, the state Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children and that if they are destroyed, someone can be held responsible. It's a ruling that has major implications for in vitro fertilization treatments in that state and it's led to nearly half of IVF clinics already shutting down their operations. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze talks to some women affected. Emily Capolito and her husband James stored their embryos at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. It's the biggest of three providers that have now halted new IVF treatments. The process used by 238,000 Americans every year to help get pregnant. This is an incredibly grueling physical, mental, and emotional process. The couple has spent more than $50,000 on treatments over two years and had hoped to schedule their first embryo transfer next month. I do feel like that timeline is in jeopardy. Um, we are on an indefinite pause. The reason for the pause? Doctors like Beth Malizia at Alabama Fertility Specialists fear they could now face wrongful death charges for discarding unused embryos, a typical part of the IVF process. Some really, really hard phone calls over the last couple days to patients. IVF patient Tori Beasley tells us she's dejected that the courts are deciding her family's future. How does someone else get to dictate what I say, what I, the, what I want for my family? She was scheduled to have an embryo transfer March 4th. Her doctor calling late Thursday to say the procedure was canceled. 
ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. For women in states with limited abortion access, the journey to get the care they need can be harrowing. ABC's Rachel Scott has more of their stories, with one woman in Texas saying that she never even believed in abortion care until now. A young mom's supposed to be celebrating the coming birth of a new life, instead mourning it. Forced to travel hundreds of miles from home in order to save her own life. At 22 weeks along, it's painfully obvious that Alexandra is pregnant. What you can't see is the heartbreak behind her smile. She and her husband Blake will leave for Washington, D.C. to get an abortion. It's a tragic end to a much wanted pregnancy. And while she is confident in her decision, she did ask us to change their names to avoid harassment for speaking publicly about this very private journey. I went to um, a high-risk doctor and the first thing he said was, you know, I'm seeing a lot of abnormalities here and she's not compatible with life. There were four different abnormalities. Altogether, there was no chance of survival, especially with one being Potter syndrome, where critical organs don't develop. When you're getting the news and you're not getting any answers as to what more you could do and what your options are, did you understand why? I did afterwards, and that was very frustrating for me because the whole word abortion was not in my vocabulary. I personally don't believe in it. What about now? There's definitely gray areas that should definitely be considered and not some government telling you that yes or no. Did you get a sense that your doctors were afraid? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't that they didn't want to help me. They were just nervous about telling me where to get the help. Dr. Shelley Tien knows what that's like. On this day, Dr. Tien is in Kansas at the Trust Women Clinic. As a board-certified OBGYN who specializes in maternal fetal medicine, Dr. Tien is an expert in high-risk pregnancies. She's also an abortion provider. Why do you believe it's essential to provide abortion care? Safe abortion care is women's health care. It's necessary health care. And suddenly we are in a position where we're scared to talk about it. Physicians and healthcare systems are wondering, is she sick enough to meet that exception? Can I act now? Dr. Tian goes to Kansas for a few days every month. But her home base is in Jacksonville, Florida. Florida's Republican-controlled government passed a 15-week abortion ban that could soon become a six-week ban. My name is Vanessa. I'm a single mom from Pensacola, Florida. I have a autistic six-year-old son, and I am here for a medical abortion. She nearly died after giving birth to her son when she was just 19 years old. My blood pressure would not go down for like about a week straight. Um, I had a stroke just the day after I had my son. Vanessa's blood pressure is still an issue, making pregnancy dangerous. It just kind of feels like you have no other choice up there but to have a baby. We also met a woman we will call Jenny. I don't have headaches. I have stage four kidney disease and I have very high, high blood pressure and I also a type two diabetic. And my age, I'm 42 years old as well. So I'm a very high risk pregnancy. Like Vanessa, Jenny was also recently hospitalized. She says this doesn't feel like much of a choice to her either. All of Jenny's doctors recommended termination. The exceptions to the abortion ban in many of these states are confusing, vague, and truly just woefully inadequate for how complex and nuanced pregnancy complications can be. 
If Florida gets to impose a six-week abortion ban, both of these women would have to get incredibly sick to qualify for an exception. They would have to be on the brink of death. Back in Texas, that's something Alexandra refuses to let happen to her. The DC clinic they chose specializes in abortions later in pregnancy. And because Alexandra is so far along, the appointment will happen over two days. A month after the procedure, we caught up with Alexandra down in Texas. You said you never thought about the word abortion before. You were yeah. against abortion. Why come forward and share your story? I'm getting stronger where I can talk about it more. Everybody has said, I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. You've done, you did the right thing. And that has given me a lot of, you know, hope that my story did change people's minds and that they may possibly, you know, do something different. That was ABC's Rachel Scott reporting. Access to mental health services is another area that's been a struggle for many, especially for women of color. But women who experience racism and discrimination are the ones who could benefit the most from mental health services. Chief Social Impact and Diversity Officer at Headspace Health, Wisdom Powell, explains the disparities to ABC's Diane Macedo. Wisdom, according to the Psychiatric Times, women of color seek adequate mental health care less than half as often as white women, despite their higher risk for mental health problems. Is there a sense of why that is and how to fix it? A long-standing misconception is that those resistances to seeking care are solely attributable to individual attitudes, when in fact, the reasons for that lack of help seeking are also rooted in historical uh, mistreatment and malice by healthcare systems, a time in our history when medical um, systems use mental health um, and weaponized it in ways that uh, forced institutionalization among black women. And you say systemic racism and discrimination not only create barriers to care, but they also have their own impact on black women's mental health. Can you talk more about that? Yes, there's a longstanding scientific evidence base to document that across time and in incidents and in momentary incidents, that racial discrimination and exposure to bias can produce deleterious impacts on one's mental health. There are associations between exposure to racism and depression, um, associations between racism and anxiety uh, symptoms. And there are also, sadly, associations between exposure to racism and outcomes like suicidal ideation. So I think that we have to pay attention to the ways that those structural exposures, those environmental exposures, get embodied by Black women in ways that keep score and cause them in some ways to experience more pronounced emotional um, distress and burden. That was Wisdom Powell, Chief Social Impact and Diversity Officer at Headspace Health, speaking to ABC's Diane Macedo. Coming up, you type it and it comes out a video. The impressive yet concerning new AI technology on Perspective after this. You're listening to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Dave Packer. Skincare products, moisturizers, serums, creams, and glosses generally target a specific demographic, usually people who are in their teens and older. And some of these products claim to eliminate wrinkles, cure acne, and erase skin abnormalities. But there's a new trend taking hold on social media and in real life. Girls even younger than that, 9, 10, 11, buying up high-end skincare products and raiding stores like Sephora and Ulta. ABC's Rhiannon Alley has more on these Gen Alpha skincare experts. Time for a Sephora haul. I got this from Sephora as my birthday gift. You had to come to Ulta. Because? Because... 
they came out with a new fat oil. Every time you go into Sephora now, it's just all little girls. This is why people are saying there needs to be an age requirement to shop here. There's a controversial viral trend igniting a firestorm. Tween girls obsessed with beauty products. Some taking over the aisles and wreaking havoc in stores like Sephora and Ulta. And social media is divided. In the middle of the Thursday, why aren't these kids in school? Whose mom is buying them this? The amount of 12-year-olds in there, like, taking up every single section in the store is actually outrageous. What is driving kids to Sephora these days? It's almost like a candy land of makeup and skincare and beauty. Faith Shui is a veteran of the beauty industry. Let's talk about the emotional aspect. It can be really satisfying to come home with a bag full of new makeup or it's new so skincare. True. There's something about unwrapping a brand new product that you're really excited to try and the joy that it brings that is undeniable. Popular and high-end brands like Drunk Elephant, Charlotte Tilbury, and Glow Recipe with steep price tags now considered must-haves for girls too young for their own credit cards, too young to use TikTok or Instagram. But that's not stopping them from ultra-luxe skincare hauls. This is Generation Alpha. So, buckle up. It's for mornings. I have this face oil. Super good and moisturizing. Sephora. Tiny influencers with big personalities are sprouting up all over social media. Hey guys, it's Aldrina, and today I'm going to be trying bubble. Next, I'm going to go in with my Tatcha nice little moisturizer, and I am obsessed with this. These are Gen Alpha girls, part of humanity's newest generation, describing kids born from 2010 through the end of 2024. The digital age is the only one they know. Ashley Fell has been studying this generation for more than a decade. In the past, children were seen but not heard, and Generation Alpha is definitely being seen and heard and listened to. They are quite an empowered generation, and that's why we say they do have that purchasing power beyond their years, beyond their um, income, which is quite minimal at this point in time. One of the nation's most precious commodities, not gold or silver, tweenagers, or more accurately, Gen Alpha Kids, a term Ashley herself helped coin. We anticipate that this generation, by the time they've all finished being born, uh, will have about US $5 trillion in spending power or money spent on them. So it's no wonder the beauty industry, expected to reach $580 billion globally by 2027, is after their attention. Sephora hit a record $10 billion in revenue in North America alone last year. No doubt, with a little help from Gen Alpha. The same year, drugstore makeup brand Elf Beauty saw sales soar. And newcomers like Twish and Bubble with products specifically made for the tween consumer in mind. Dr. Claire Walensky is a dermatologist in New York City. She sees parents and kids. When you see these videos of these tweens 
doing these get ready with me. Here's my 10 products I use. What is your reaction as a doctor and as a mother? It's mostly unnecessary. I don't think you need all this skincare. I think, number one, it's financially burdensome. And number two, you're likely to cause more irritation to the skin the more products you use. So keeping it simple down to what we really need is important. In a statement on their Instagram page, Drunk Elephant responding to critics, saying, Many of our products are designed for all skin, including kids and tweens, adding they should stay away from our more potent products that include acids and retinols. The fact that it's skincare is really what is making people upset. But that's because you're thinking of it as these kids are only buying the skincare because they feel the pressure to look a certain way. What if we viewed it through the lens of they're just buying the skincare because it's cute packaging, it's a fun texture, they saw their favorite influencer post about it, and they're curious about trying it. ABC's Rihanna Nally reporting. First, there was ChatGPT, the chatbot that used artificial intelligence to imitate human writing. Then there was DALI, the AI program that could generate images with just a simple text prompt. And now, the company behind those tools is jumping into another medium. ABC News technology reporter Mike Dubusky has the story. OpenAI's artificial intelligence tools can already generate writing and imagery, so video was never going to be that far behind. Oren Etzioni is a professor of computer science at the University of Washington and the founder of TrueMedia.org. He says the company's latest program is called Sora. Sora is very simply a magical program where you type in text and out comes a video that corresponds to your text. And these aren't just any videos. They're ultra-realistic or ultra-stylized. Early samples put out by the company show woolly mammoths walking in front of a snowy mountain or a stylish woman walking through a city at night, all generated entirely by a computer program. But even in these early glimpses, there are imperfections. That woman out for a walk, it looks photoreal, like something you'd see in a movie, until you notice her left leg suddenly becomes her right leg. This isn't unusual for the AI space. ChatGPT occasionally gets things wrong, and Dolly 3 still struggles to generate images of human hands. But NYU professor and AI expert Gary Marcus says even with Sora's flaws, it still has major potential to mislead. If you look carefully, there are often problems, but if it's a short little video, you might be able to fool somebody pretty easily. The technology to manipulate and distort images and videos has existed for a while, with the likes of Photoshop and other editing tools. But Marcus says what makes Sora especially concerning is how easy it is to use. All the user needs to do is prompt the system with a couple sentences describing what they want their video to be, and then seconds later, that video appears. It's making the whole process of deep faking easier. It's making so you don't need any technical skills to make a fake video that looks like almost anything you want. Etzioni says there's not just potential for this technology to be misused, it's actually already happening. We heard about an executive at a multinational company in Hong Kong who was conned out of $25 million in a fake video call that was orchestrated. He saw and heard his colleagues, but they were not real. Sora is not widely available yet. 
Right now, OpenAI says outside researchers and academics are red-teaming the problem. In other words, they're tapping third parties to look into all the possible ways it could be misused. While that's happening, other tech firms are working on their own video generators. Earlier this year, Google showed off Lumiere, a model that can create five-second videos. And Marcus says as companies refine the technology, bad actors refine their strategies. I think we have to be realistic that we're in a kind of cat and mouse game and things go back and forth and the people who are making the fakes are getting better and better at it. And that's just reality. OpenAI has not said when it plans to make Sora publicly available. Reporting for Perspective, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. From ABC News, this has been Perspective. Thanks for listening. This show was produced by Aaron Ferrer, Mara Milwaukee, and Joy Piazza. If you want to listen to any of our past shows, subscribe to the Perspective Podcast. Give us a review. And if you've got the time, tell us what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find Perspective and other ABC News shows at abcaudio.com slash podcasts. For ABC News, I'm Dave Packard. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.